are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 150 is Josh Caterer, known for his work with the Smoking Popes, a band featuring his brother Matt on bass and his other brother Eli on guitar. We're right now hearing Megan from their third full album, 1997's Destination Failure. That was their last album from the 90s, then they broke up, and he was in a group called Duval for a couple years, but then the Smoking Popes reformed and have released three albums since then, plus he's had a couple solo releases. Today we're going to be discussing a new version of his classic song, Need You Around, from 2021's The Hideout Sessions. That is a live solo album that includes a lot of covers and reworkings of his own songs. Need You Around was a big hit from their Born to Quit 1995 album. Then we'll look back to the last Pope's album, Into the Agony 2018. The song is Amanda My Love. And then look back to that interim project Duval, taking me home from their only full album, 2003's Volume and Density. We'll then hear one more new track from the Hideout Sessions, the standard My Funny Valentine. For more information, please see smokingpopesmusic.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I played a little bit of Megan by Smoking Popes from Destination Failure 1997 because it's, I guess, one of the two hits. I wasn't really clear when I was going into this. We're actually going to talk about the second hit in a minute here, but how big the hits were. Was there contact with a major label around this phase or no? That song was not ever released as a single. Okay, so it's just Spotify has picked out those two songs as... I think it is sort of like in syndication, it's a hit. Okay. So that and we're going to talk about Need You Around. So that's the even bigger hit, according to Spotify, at least. Was that a single? Yeah, that was the single. Okay. Especially because that song wound up being in the soundtrack to the movie Clueless. Right. And there's a video that I will link folks to to see you guys lip syncing. (laughs) And we'll play a little clip of the original somewhere in here just to show the contrast. But the one that we're actually promoting now is from the new album, The Hideout Sessions 2021. So you reinterpreted. It's actually not that slower, but it's definitely a very different arrangement of this. Do you want to say a few words about it before they hear it in full? This new version of Need You Around was fun to do because... It's always fun, I think, to explore different ways to approach the same song. That There's always a process when you write a song of deciding how you're going to arrange the song. And sometimes a song will work in different styles, different tempos and things, but you ultimately commit to one and you end up playing it that way the rest of your life. This project gave me the opportunity to uh, sort of liberate a few of my songs from their original arrangement. And Need You Around was one that I was particularly anxious to do that with because it's one of our more popular songs. So we end up playing it at every single show. So we've played it with that one particular arrangement like 5,000 times. And so it's just kind of a breath of fresh air to approach it differently and have another option for how to express kind of the heart of the song. So that's what this is. Because I 
So I guess just to give a sense of the contrast, let me also play, you know, 15 seconds of the original. So it struck me that even though this new version sounds so much slower, it's actually not that much slower. And part of the appeal of the original version is that though the drums and bass and, you know, everybody's playing very fast, like you still have this legato vocal style that's running throughout. So it just seems that with this new version, you're just leaning into that further and making the instruments more in tune with that rather than the shtick of a lot of smoking Pope stuff, which is we're going to have this very high energy underbelly while you're singing like a 1940s sort of show tune melody. The contrast in that original version of Need You Around had to do not only with the, you know, what you would describe as the energy of, of the music versus the vocal, but the actual tempo being very fast contrasted with a vocal that is where the lines are kind of drawn out. It's like slow singing with fast playing. So what we did in the new version of Need You Around was we played it basically halftime. 
So it might be similar, like the BPMs are similar, but it's halftime versus full-time. So it's a tempo that fits the delivery of the lyric a little more closely and sort of in the process, I think, brings out more of the melancholy aspect of the melody and lyric than the original one did. Yeah, there and there's something in the rhythm that's vaguely Spanishy to me, you know, especially in the bass. You know, it's not a tango exactly, but it's, you know, it's in the neighborhood of that kind of feel, which adds to the, again, these melodies. I don't think it's an accident that this album combines this song with, you know, we're going to play My Funny Valentine at the end. You know, things from the classic era of American show tunes. Was that an accidental influence in your melody writing or was that something you were actually immersed in as a kid? Oh, that's something I was actually immersed in from a very young age. It was a very musical household. And there were always, as it says on that episode of Twin Peaks, where I come from, there's always music in the air. <laughs> that, was, that was definitely the case in the caterer house growing up. There were always albums being played. Our parents had a variety of different styles and genres of albums. But also we were watching a lot of old musical movies. So we were picking up music from the soundtracks of The Music Man and Singing in the Rain and some old Fred Astaire movies and The Wizard of Oz and that era of song. Because back then, popular songs often were introduced through the soundtrack of a movie. Like I saw somewhere that during his prime, which I think was like 30s and 40s, Fred Astaire introduced more songs into popular culture than any other recording artist because people would write these great songwriters, Irving Berlin and the Gershwins and people like that would write songs specifically for a Fred Astaire movie. The world would discover these songs through the voice of Fred Astaire. There's a kind of sensibility in the songwriting of that era that I was immersed in as a young person. I, I think you can hear it throughout all my songwriting. And how did that jibe with your, was the official name of the kind of rock? You know, what did you guys call yourselves and your peers back in 1992 when you're playing buzzsaw guitars, the sort of Bob Mould, that's the sort of big name that, that I grew up with, the founder of that sort of, but it was before alternative. It wasn't just alternative. What, what was it at the time? Well, when we started out, we just considered ourselves a punk band. Just a punk band. Okay. It was punk music, but I knew that we were bringing certain strands of other kinds of music into it that maybe weren't usually present there in the songwriting, but still it was under the large umbrella of punk. Of course, when that label alternative came along, it became an all encompassing label that if you think about it, doesn't mean anything. Nine inch nails, heavy techno bands, also alternative. Sure. All right. <laughs> the thing that's not on the radio. Yeah, it became a term that applied to whatever certain radio stations chose to play. <laughs> How did that group of fans react? Like, were they focusing more on the fact that it's this loud rock experience or were they picking up and actually enjoying, as far as you could tell, this Tin Pan Alley infusion into punk? Well, I have always had the sense based on what people have told me and kind of the way that people were responding to it. I've always had the sense that really what people were appreciating about our music was something about the 
emotional quality of what was being communicated in the songs. The thing about it being buzzsaw guitars with crooning vocals was a bit of a marketing strategy that was emphasized by Capitol Records. But before that, I always was told that people just liked the song. Like people would come up and say, I love that song. It, like, it hits me. It makes me sad or like I can relate to that. What you wrote about in that song, like that happened to me. So I think that's below the surface of the crooner thing. I think that's what really has connected with audiences as far as I can tell. It's not only the crooner plus the sonic palette that you're using, but those chord progressions, the fact that this through its verse slash chorus, right? It just kind of evolves into the chorus. It's not like it has a, a space and then here's the big chorus like it's going to be in Amanda the next song we're talking about. But it just moves into that through a nice... Need You Around doesn't have a chorus in the sense that we understand choruses these days. But it is definitely, and this was intentional and something that I, I wanted to celebrate, is the way that a chorus doesn't exist in a lot of the older songs from the golden era of standards. There might be a line that occasionally gets repeated or, or like the end of a verse will always come back to the same phrase or something. But it's like you said, like the chorus is not separated from the verse. It's just an, an idea that gets repeated. And so that's, that was the inspiration for that song's approach to a chorus. Well, and delivering it really slowly also helps because like that's plenty. I need you around. Like, that's enough. Hey, that's not bad. Repeat that three or four times. I mean, you do at the end and that, oh, it's we're repeating the chorus again. <laughs> Just the one line. Again, let's talk about this new version. What is your history with these players? This is not the Smoking Popes guys. Are these people that were sort of already in your solo band or did they come together with you for this recording? They came together for this recording. These are guys that I've known for a long time. John San Juan plays in a band called The Hush Drops, and he also has some solo music out. I've seen him perform and have performed on the same bill as him at different times throughout the years, but we never played music together. But I, I, was, I was just in, admired his skill as a musician and liked his style. And it's basically the same with the drummer, John Perrin, who I had seen him perform in a few different bands and shared the bill with him a couple of times with his band, The Love Shots. Just liked him, liked the way he plays, and just had this idea that putting those two guys together, that they'd make a good rhythm section and that we might have a musical rapport. If you gather musicians who are all of a certain skill level, you can be confident that the product is going to be good. It's just you might not know exactly what it's going to be. You know it's going to be good, but it could veer to the left or the right as far as what the style of it or the, the collective personality of that group of musicians ends up being. And in this case, going into it, my original thought was that these arrangements were going to be a little more light. I guess that's the way that I would describe it like a little more mellow, not as aggressive. That's that's kind of what I had in mind for this band and for these these arrangements. But then as soon as we started playing together, it just went in a different direction. It sounded like a power pop band that really needed to rock. And so I was like, okay, let's just go with that. Let go of my preconceived notion. And I think that the end result has a lot of rock and roll energy to it, which is entirely different different than the kind of energy that the Smoking Popes would bring. But 
just as much energy, I think, but in a different direction. Sure. So did you have this new guitar line that is the center of the song already determined before you got in a room with these two guys? Or was that a really gr- a group effort to figure out what speed it was going to be and exactly what you were going to play? The thing that I had in mind for this song, and it's this is different than my approach to most of the songs on this record, because I, in most cases, gave both the other musicians a wide berth to bring to it whatever they think was going to work. But I came into this one with a pretty specific idea about what the drum pattern was going to be. That Like I had that in mind. So I communicated that to Mr. Perrin and he started with that, although he brought to it the percussion. So was he shaking with his right hand while he was snaring with his left? Is that what I'm hearing? And then he puts that down or is it an overdub? Oh, it's not an overdub. He has in his right hand a maraca and a drumstick. So he's shaking the maraca and occasionally using the drumstick in his right hand to hit cymbals or do a little drum fill. Yeah, it has a very lazy quality. Like I thought he was maybe even trying to play swing, but I think it's just the shaker he was using. It kind of puts you behind the beat a little bit, you know, as opposed to doing that very same riff on a hi-hat. Yeah, I, I love the feel that he brought to that. And so, but when we started playing the song, he started with that beat, and then I was just kind of chugging along on the guitar, just like a just downstrokes. And somewhere there's an early version of a demo of it where I'm just doing that. Oh, for the whole song? For the whole song, yeah, just chugging sort of downstroke power chord stuff on the guitar. We recorded our practices, and when I listened back to it, I was like, well, that doesn't work. There there needs to be something else happening. So I tried a more layered kind of intricate thing where I'm picking individual notes, and that seemed to work better. Well, I'm curious as to whether that... Let me actually play. This is 11 seconds in or so. It sounds like you're going to do this in a minor key, but no, this is just a thing that's in the intro. There's a chord in there that comes across as a minor chord. What that is, is just me accidentally hitting some open strings. It does achieve something. It sort of gives you the false impression that the song as a whole is going to be delivered in a minor key, but it isn't. I mean, I heard that when we were listening back to the early mixes of the song. I was like, oh, I kind of made a little oops there, but I like it. Let's leave it in. We wanted this to be very live and we didn't want to like do overdubs and fix a bunch of things. So you hear some of those things throughout the record, like little erroneous notes and words that are maybe a little flat in my delivery. Like I know my vocal delivery was not perfect, but it's a live album. I wanted it to be raw and real. So we just left that stuff in. So given that's a live three piece, what's with the horn? Who's playing the horn? How is that possible? Was that an overdub? No, that was not an overdub. We had a horn player come in. Oh, you just had a fourth guy. (laughs) Yeah, just for two songs. A guy named Max Crawford, he's a friend of ours. He plays in a few bands around town. He's got a horn section called the Total Pro Horns that you can hire for different things, but he's a a friend to us. So we had him come in and play and 
do a flugelhorn solo. It sounded a little low, and it sounded muted, but... Yeah, we, we asked him for a trumpet solo, but when he showed up, he had a few different horns with him, and he's like, I think the flugelhorn's going to work better on this one. <laughs> All right. Before we go on, I want to tell you about HelloFresh. It's America's number one meal kit with fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. You can skip those trips to the grocery store and make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. I am not a good cook, and I have like three different things that I make for my family, which mostly means that my wife does the cooking or we order in. But with a HelloFresh meal kit, I can actually contribute. They offer 50 meals and market items each week with a range of flavors, cuisines, and ingredients so you'll never get bored, including always low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian, and pescatarian options. And they are simple and quick, with steps and pictures to guide you along the way. And yet, they will be over 72% cheaper than the average restaurant meal, according to Zagat's Dining Survey. It's actually 28% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store, and you don't have to plan meals, leave the house, buy the stuff. And in addition to the make-em-yourself recipes, HelloFresh offers quick and easy meals. Those are 15 to 20-minute dinners, breakfast on the go, and more easy options for your busy lifestyle. In all cases, over 90% of ingredients are sourced directly from farmers to ensure you get only the freshest produce and proteins delivered right to your door. By using HelloFresh, you are shortening the supply chain. You're making it so ingredients travel from farm to your doorstep in under a week. So they're very fresh. So give it a try. And let me be clear, this is not like a membership where you are required to buy a certain amount of stuff. You just sign up for meals. If you want to change your delivery days, your food preferences, skip a week whenever you need. Why don't you go to HelloFresh.com slash Examined14 and use code Examined14. You get up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Just go to the website, look at the menu options. You're going to see something you like. That's HelloFresh.com slash Examined14 and use code Examined14. You'll get up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I also want to tell you about our longtime sponsor, Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. You can learn graphic design from David Carson, fantasy and science fiction writing from N.K. Jemisin, yoga from Donna Farhi, mindfulness and meditation from John Kabat-Zinn, and of course the music classes, quest love on music curation and DJing, songwriting and producing from Alicia Keys, St. Vincent, Sheila E., Herbie Hancock, Carlos Santana, Hans Zimmer. The list goes on and on. But I don't want to talk about the music classes right now. I want to talk about Judd Apatow Teaches Comedy, which I needed to use. I'm recording a pretty much pop tomorrow on directing comedy. He had three lectures as part of that on directing. And I don't have a lot of time to spend on this. So I watched them double speed. So that all three lectures took me only about 15 minutes. And I learned about setting up the tone of a comedy. I learned about the mechanics of shooting it, of producing it. And with this little investment of time, I was convinced that this is something I could actually do. That this is not actually that different from running a uh, studio recording session and managing all the people that you have to do in that and the schedule and all that stuff. So get yourself an annual membership. You'll find there are so many ways to just stretch out, dive into different things. My whole family uses my account. They all want different things and they can access it on any device they want. I highly recommend you check it out. You can get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Well, let's push to the second song here to get another taste of this pop sensibility, because this also has a very 
I mean, it doesn't have crazy as it sounds. It doesn't have like that kind of 40s-ish quote. But Amanda, my love, from your last Smoking Pope's album, Agony 2018. Can you say a few words about it before we hear it? This song was inspired by a documentary that I watched about Amanda Knox. I think it was on Netflix. I don't know if it's still there. It is. I saw the same one. I, I figured it out like 10 minutes before this interview. I'm trying, what is this about? Oh, it's that. Okay. <laughs> I saw that. I watched that documentary about the story of, of what happened to Amanda Knox. Fascinating story. I watched that and I got the impression. This is not something that they really played up, but I just I, sort of my personal radar about it gave me the impression that maybe the Italian boyfriend was still hung up on her. But of course, once the prison thing happened and they were released, she moved on. She was over it. But I just imagined that somewhere in his heart, he still had a thing for her and was even a little bit upset that he had paid such a high price for such a brief relationship and felt like he was owed a little bit more from her romantically. (laughs) And so... I just sort of adopted that mindset and wrote the song from his point of view. I can still recall the day When her smile melted my world away If I knew the price we'd have to pay I'd have fallen just the same Death was waiting in her room separate cells Publicly condemned to private hells There are secrets that she never tells And I knew them all somehow When at last they set us free The parasites would never let us be I believe that she wants needed me 
was this a new drummer as of this album or the last couple albums? No, this is Mike Fellamley who played on all of our 90s albums. He played on Born to Quit and Destination Failure and all that stuff. And then when we reformed in 2005, after a seven-year break, Mike was not with us. We made two albums with two different drummers, but then ended up reuniting with Mike for this new record. And as soon as we started playing with him again, all of us in the band felt like we were back, like we had reconnected with what we felt like was our identity as a band. And so it really had an invigorating effect on us. And that's when I started writing these songs, you know, to capture that spirit. That explains a lot. I mean, like that original version of Need You Around. I mean, the kick drum is the thing that is propelling this. Like that is, as far as I'm concerned, the central feature of the song, you know, of its arrangement. Yes. And I I think Mike's drumming has that effect on a lot of our material. Like he is a driving force as a drummer and, and, That became incorporated in the songwriting that I had done for the Smoking Popes, or at least for a long time, I would write songs with an arrangement in mind that would feature his driving drum style. Now, of course, the band doesn't come in until verse two here. A logistical issue that if you start with a single guitar and then start singing, you've got a pitch established you can sing against. But here you have to, if you're playing this live, do you play the chord to yourself quietly so you can have, okay, here's my starting note. Because you're starting a cappella, which is very easy to train wreck that damn thing. If you listen to live recordings from almost any style of music, you'll hear somebody in the band plays a note as a reference, like a guidepost for the vocalists. If if a song starts with vocals, you'll hear like five seconds beforehand, you'll hear the piano just hit one note. And then the vocalists are supposed to latch onto that and use that as their starting point. And so that's what we do. Like if I'm going to do that song, I'll just it's in F, so I'll just quickly hit an F chord, just punch it. Or just play it legato and then do your announcements or whatever. And then it's it's still floating in the air, something to get it out there. Yeah, somebody on stage has to produce an F note for me to latch onto and I'll start singing then. I've noticed that is a fairly common technique that you've used of, let's make the vocal line an extended pickup to the one or have everybody come in on the three or something so that it's not just okay, we've hit the second verse. Everybody comes in on one. (laughs) There's something that's slightly out of sync to make it a little more interesting. Yeah, there are a variety of ways that you can sort of build dramatic tension and keep things interesting and like a clench and release (laughs) kind kind of a motion that happens in a song. A lot of it you just do instinctually. I'm sure there are technical terms for all these things, but we've just been doing them from our gut for a long time. Well, in terms of balancing the two guitars, so you were a trio for a while, right? I was listening to some of your earlier stuff and it sounded either power trio or you weren't playing guitar, like the seven inches. Oh yeah, on the early seven inches, we were a trio. The first couple of them were really recorded as a trio with just like one rhythm guitar track. I think on the last seven inch we did, I finally agreed to record a second rhythm track, which I felt was like a compromise. (laughs) I've always been self-conscious about doing anything in a recording that's going to seem disingenuous. I, I always feel like an album should, as much as possible, be representative of the reality of what that band is. And you don't want to do too much. And I know that this way of looking at it can have a crippling effect on you. For example, like the Beatles, basically, most of their albums wouldn't exist if they had held that point of view, <laughs> you know, because they ended up bringing in a lot of instrumentation that couldn't be reproduced live. Of course, they weren't 
playing live for the second half of their career, but that gave them the freedom to do that. For me personally, as an aesthetic choice, I've wanted our studio recordings to be not too far away from what we could reproduce live. Well, and then even just using two guitars as if they were one big guitar. Like clearly there are sometimes where you're trading off solos. And in this song, we've got this break where one of the guitars is doing one thing and then another one comes in a few measures later playing this, that you're actually making use of that orchestra. But for the most part, like when the full band comes in here, are you trying to make a point of playing the same chord in different parts of the neck or you're just fine with playing together and it just sounds big and the fact that you're not going to be exactly in time together with your strumming and can have stereo separation, that that provides the... uh... We have often taken different parts of the neck. So our our strumming pattern is the same. Like I'll be doing a bar chord up on the high frets and Eli will be doing the same chord down low. So it's just fuller. But the fact that we have the same strumming patterns is a pretty organic result of just our DNA and the fact that we grew up playing together and like listening to the same kind of music. So a lot of the musical choices that we make are things that we don't talk about. They just happen naturally. And I've even seen videos of us on stage. And I've noticed that all three of us, both guitars and bass players, since we're all brothers, the way that our right arms are moving are pretty much identical when we're all going for it, like on a chorus. We're like three little gears in the same machine or something. Then Matt is playing bass with a pick, I assume. He's playing bass with a pick and adopting the same strumming pattern that the two guitars are. So it's either really boring to you or (laughs) you find a certain power in the kind of triple reinforcement of that strumming pattern. Hopefully the latter. Let me play just a little bit of this is about a minute in. Locked away in separate cells Publicly condemned to private hells There are secrets that she never tells So even there, the guitars are doing just this one sustained note. Is that both of you doing that sustained note together? It sort of sounds like it, but I'm not sure. Yeah, there's two guitars in there doing that. And we wanted to, at that point, hold something out that was going to get some feedback. Something that was going to feel more airy and atmospheric. There's sort of two points where it needs to build. The second half of the verse, there needs to be something that kicks in and takes it up a notch. So there's a little more of a defined guitar part that has some picking in it. Mm -hmm. But then there needs to be a definite perceived jump when we go back into the chorus and the strumming kicks back in. And then just as far as the chord progression goes on the OOO, the fact that you're introducing Different chords on the second O and the third O. (laughs) Like the first O is still staying where it was. Can you say a little about how this progression came together? It's not quite as Tin Pan Alley as Need You Around, but it still has something that distinguishes it from your average pop punk. Right. Well, I think that doing an O-O-O is something that usually just happens vocally. I mean, that's pretty common. It goes all the way back to like the Misfits were pretty big on the O-O-O's. There's a long tradition of OOOs, but in this case, it is accompanied by an ascending chord pattern that goes along with it. I think that's just a way of making a moment in the song more interesting. If memory serves, when I was writing the song, I wanted to go from one chord to the chord that was 
three frets above it. And so for a moment there, I just sang the OO and then just then jumped four frets up. But then pretty quickly it was like, no, why don't I play along with what I'm singing there? And we can just punch that. Then it becomes a moment. I feel like we get better at that as we go along. And you just look for these little moments in the song that you can put a handle on that moment and hang something there. (laughs) At least there you're just moving bar chords up the neck, right? So that's going to come through no matter how big and fat and distorted the sound is. I mean, this is within a context where you have this descending thing where I'm just wondering if there are limits given your guitar sound to how Tin Pan Alley Beatlesque you feel like you can be in terms of like, what I really like about your chord progressions is there's a little, ooh, there's a ninth in there. There's just something that makes it a little thicker, but it seems like built into the thwack of that huge guitar sound are some limits that you're not going to be able to even detect exactly what's going on if it's too complex a chord. Those kind of subtleties are more perceptible in the verses, in the quieter parts of the song, where you can hear like individual strings of a chord. But once we get to the chorus, we're cranking it on full distortion. So some of those subtleties get lost. And so if you're going to throw in anything that you're accenting, you have to do it in a big way. Like just have power chords sliding up and singing OOO along with them rhythmically and having the drums punctuate that too. So it's like impossible to miss. So the fact that you've got this sort of sonic youth flavor here (laughs) coming in. In this otherwise very major key, straightforward song. I mean, I, I really like it. Can you say a little about what your thought was there? This is kind of the only thing that connotes the, they were accused of like a, a devil worshiping murder. <laughs> like, and this at least connotes that something terrible has happened, whether it's what they've been accused of or what's happening to them. And there's nothing about the rest of the song that would make you think prison, <laughs> for instance. <laughs> well, I will tell you that that portion of the song was very collaborative. And it was written when we were all together. It was written at our rehearsals. It was a point in the song where we knew that something needed to happen. And I think generally on this record, I mean, there are some guitar solos on this record, but we wanted to move past the potentially formulaic nature of constructing a song in such a way where like, okay, it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And then you have a guitar solo which happens over the chord pattern of the verse. Almost all the guitar solos on, say, our album Born to Quit are that way, because that's inspired by the kind of songwriting that would have been happening on like top 40 hits from the 1950s. You know, (laughs) it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And then there's some sort of instrument is soloing based on the melody of the song, it became a, like a default way for us to do it, but we wanted to intentionally not do that. We wanted to be a little less predictable. And also, I usually would come into a, a rehearsal, like having written a song and already planned out like, okay, here's the structure of the song. Here's where the solo is going to happen. And even if it's, you know, maybe Eli is going to do the solo here, but I already have decided what chords are going to be played under that. So I don't know, maybe that's because I'm a control freak. Like my songwriting is usually pretty close to fully formed when I present a song to the band. And then everybody listens to that 
and kind of brings their own flavor to their part. But that's within the the construct of a pretty well planned out song that I've already presented to them. But in this case, I had verse chorus and then I, I just was like, guys, something needs to happen here. So let's figure it out. Let's explore. And we did. And that's what we ended up coming up with. I can't even remember which of us. I, I feel like it was Eli who came up with that really kind of moody guitar part that is at the heart of that portion of the song. The rhythm part or the, or the lead lick, the sort of cure? The lead, the lead lick. Although I'm the one playing it, but I, I really can't remember who thought of it first. But then somewhere in there, Mike came up with that kind of syncopated, slightly unusual approach to his drum part on that song. It was just like... It was a communal act of songwriting, more so than we usually do. And it brought it to that song something that I think fits in the song, but it does not feel like a traditional Smoking Pope's part. It's moodier and more atmospheric than something we would usually do. And it communicates something in a totally nonverbal way. Like you said, it's something that like does express the sort of tortured feeling of imprisonment. But it does that in a purely musical way. I like that. I feel like it was a step forward for us creatively. And it was something that we can all be proud of because we came up with it together. And so like there were moments like that on this record, I think more so than on a lot of other Smoking Pope's record. You know, we're deciding that we're going to try something different musically and we're going to try to find it together. And do these generally stay when they migrate to a live setting the same length? So like that gap and then the solo section at the end, it would be very easy in a live section to just expand those out and we're entering a new a new land here that we're going to play in for an indefinite period. Right, because as a listener, you're sort of like, where is this supposed to end? Like it just seems to, it's hard to know what the count is. Like how many of those did they decide to put there and, and why? <laughs> and so there was a bit of that feeling once we had determined that that's how long we were going to do it. I remember Mike saying, I get lost on how many of those we're supposed to do. So Josh, if you can just do something, just let me know when I'm supposed to stop. (laughs) And so I'm communicating that through my physical posture. I'll have a way of like kind of turning toward the drum kit and making a gesture that is like, all right, this is the last one. You know, if Mike becomes legally blind and he can't see past his symbols, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to have to figure out a different way to do it. Let me play a little of this solo. You end up having two lead guitars eventually. So clearly there is some overdubbing. There's a third guitar still holding the, the rhythm down. Was that you or Eli doing that initial solo there? The initial solo was me. Okay. And then Eli had this idea that he wanted to come in. He's like, you, you keep soloing, but I'm going to come in with just this bend uh-huh. that keeps going higher and higher. It just builds the tension up and up until we finally hit those final cathartic notes. That was his idea. With even a little, some triplets, some kind of swing feel a little in the drums right right at the end there. You do those, those four hits and then that extended 
My drummer called it a trash ending. Da-dum! You know, <laughs> where it could yeah, go on. Tra- trash can ending is what we call it. I think that's an industry term. I guess before we move to this other project that was sort of in between, I can't resist the fact that you're in a band with your brothers, but yet you're the songwriter on everything, right? We collaborate on arrangements, but the songwriting is usually just me. There have been a couple of songs that have been co-written because one of my brothers will come up with a part, like a chord pattern or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, a portion of a song, and they show that to me, and then I sort of flesh it out and turn it into a whole song. We did that on, um, on our first album. There's a song called Off My Mind that has kind of a, a groovy riff that drives it forward. And that was Matt who came up with that. And has this always been the dynamic, you know, that you were just coming up with songs from a young age or were the other guys, like every other band I know that has brothers in it, there ends up being more competition or more dual vocals or more trading off, you know, something that's not just this is the songwriter and these are the guys that are in his band, which is an easier thing to do. Well, it's not easy for anybody. I know from experience to get a lot of other people to just play my music. I don't want to play your songs. Just play my songs. I've written a lot of songs. Yeah, I don't know. It's something that we never really talked about. I just started writing a bunch of songs. My brothers are very musical and creative and, you know, they have always tended to to come up with parts but for whatever reason they weren't writing complete songs and bringing them to the band and and saying hey i've got a new song we should consider doing like i feel like if that had happened or if that were to happen in the future the overall interpersonal vibe of the band is such that we would all including myself be like okay cool let's let's give it a shot there's kind of an openness. I don't feel like there's a competitive thing. It's just that like fairly early on, we just sort of established this rhythm where like I just kept writing songs all the time. So I would show up with like eight or 10 songs and we that's what we would play. <laughs> sure. And in the face of that, you have to ask them what, you know, you're in a band already. Why wouldn't you just try it and bring something up? But I guess they did that on occasion, but not to the extent I also noticed the background vocals are pretty sparse, even though they're pretty when they're there. So like on Amanda, my love, you know, you're just actually, it's funny that this one has that line, like I need you around with the Amanda, my love that you can repeat, but it also has the chorus. It's just, it's the end of the chorus as opposed to the kicker at the end of the chorus, as opposed to being the thing, the center point that people latch onto as it was a need you around. The question was about, you know, the harmonies that are you suggesting where people sing? Is it just a natural, this is just where they feel like they should chime in? I'm, again, kind of surprised that there aren't more of them throughout the corpus. Singing backup vocals is something that Eli has expressed more of an interest in as time went on. I feel like for the, you know, the first incarnation of the band, like during the 90s, it was just something that nobody else in the band wanted to do. So if I wanted there to be any harmonies, I would put them in myself. But then you know, we took a break there. And when we got back together, it, I just kind of feel like we all were starting to mature and want to try different things. And one of those things was Eli was just interested in uh, becoming more of a vocalist. He has a really good voice, but I, I think it was like something that he needed to ease into. He wasn't used to singing on stage already. In the early years, we would get up there and like there would just be one microphone for me. Nobody else had a mic. <laughs> so. And probably nobody could hear the vocals anyway, like just the average punk club. 
how the sound the sound worked. You're lucky if anything is cutting through. So now we have this understanding that we're sort of looking for places for little harmonies and backup vocals to be there in the song. We're both looking for those spots, and I feel like they're pretty obvious. You know, like I wrote that chorus, and it was like clearly there's there's an opportunity for a harmony on on the end of it. So we've talked a little about the early years and heard something off this last Pope's album to date. Let's turn to Duval, a band in between. When the Popes were broken up, Volume and Density is the, the full-length album from 2003. And I had requested we, we pick something from this middle period. Can you say a little about where you were at with this album and creating this other band, that this was something to be a vehicle for your, your sacred music, I guess? <laughs> I guess that's how you'd describe it. I've always thought that's kind of a funny... Uh... <laughs> genre. Well, it doesn't hit you over the head. It's not, you know, you did a cover album of Christmas songs. Like, okay, well, that's straightforwardly so-called sacred church music. But this, I don't know that some of the songs you might not, unless you're really listening closely, know that, oh, you're talking about Jesus. You're not talking about (laughs) girlfriend or whatever. Yeah. So as I mentioned, there was about a seven-year period where the Smoking Popes uh, had broken up and then we ended up reforming. But the reason why we broke up for seven years is because I quit the band after becoming a Christian. And that sort of was a process that happened between the years 1997 to 99 is when I was, I, I was like on this spiritual journey that was definitely a, an era where I was really passionately seeking some transcendent truth and looking for a relationship with God and didn't know exactly where to find it. But somewhere in that year and a half long period, knew that Jesus was central to being the answer to that. And sort of that time period was discovering sort of what it meant to have a relationship with God, to be a follower of Jesus, not having grown up in church, so not having any preconceived notions of what Christianity was all about, not even really knowing very many people who would call themselves Christians. This was all stuff that I was discovering by reading. I was reading the Bible, particularly the New Testament of the Bible, and feeling like I understood some of it, but a lot of it was just raising more questions for me and and kind of like, I was finding answers and new questions sort of at the same rate. But I just kept reading different things. And, you know, one thing that was really super important and pivotal for me was to discover the writings of C.S. Lewis, particularly his book, Mere Christianity. It really kind of cleared up a lot of the questions that I had. And I feel like when I read, read that book is when I really became a Christian and sort of embraced a faith in Jesus Christ that I actually understood and could lay hold of. And so all of that being the backdrop for pretty soon after that decision was made, I quit the band to devote myself completely to just getting involved in church life and sort of growing in my faith. And even honestly, part of it was going through this period where I felt like renouncing, I guess what you would describe as secular music, although that that too feels like a sort of a weird category for any music that isn't explicitly Christian or religious is described as as secular. And that's a, a genre that you would only apply to something from a Christian point of view. I think that people who like rock music, people normally don't describe the Rolling Stones as a as a secular band. <laughs> you would only use that word if you're coming from a particularly like evangelical point of view. But anyway, I quit rock music. I felt like at the time that seemed like a permanent decision. Like I was just like 
from here on out, I'm just going to play music in church. I'm only going to devote all of my uh, musical abilities to performing sacred music in a church setting. Traditional stuff. Jesu, Lord of Man's Desiring, stuff like that. Not the deciding to write your own music. Obviously, my thinking evolved on that, and I ended up playing rock music again and even going back to the Smoking Popes. But I think that was a necessary thing to do. There was a period of time where I sort of had to clear the slate and hit reset and just spend a few years just focusing on my faith with no distractions. I'm super glad I did that. And then in between that point of view and reforming the Smoking Popes, there was this period of years where I was ready to play rock music again, but I needed it to be sort of a redeemed version of the Smoking Popes. (laughs) And I think part of what was going on there is that I, I wanted to go back to the kind of world that the Smoking Popes had inhabited, back to the same clubs and, and stuff. As a Christian who was faith forward in my musical identity. So I basically, I, I put this other band together called Duval, which was intended to be a Christian version of the Smoking Popes. And if you listen to the lyrics of Duval, you'll hear, as you said, like, most of the time, not really overt, but if you're actually paying attention, you'll pick up on a sort of a different bent in the lyrics, and there are spiritual themes there. And if you're familiar with Bible passages and biblical ideas, you can see those ideas being played out in the lyrics of of the songs. And so that band for me was sort of a bridge in between. On the one hand, I have renounced rock and roll and I'll never play outside of a church again. And then I needed a bridge back to it's okay for me to be in the smoking popes. <laughs> and like the, the kind of few years that Duval was active was sort of me working through that process. Well, let's get one of these songs out there. So taking me home is the one we picked. This is just one of my favorite Duval songs. I feel like there's something effective about the writing of it. It, it conveys a nice personal concept. I'm happy with the way that we put it together. Also, um, I feel pretty good about the guitar solo in there. Once in a dream I saw your face shining before me What could I do fall down I'm waking up now and I'm laying it all down there may be a long way left to go
We don't want to give people the wrong idea that this is an album of power ballads. We just happen to pick one that has that flavor. But, you know, there are plenty of, it could be a Smoking Pope's album as far as the tempos and the overall mood. Not that there's anything wrong with power ballad. It's great to have one here that we kind of get, the, and it's in 6-8, right? Dun, 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 dun. Is that 6-8 or 3-4? Uh, it's either a fast 3-4 or a slow 6-8. I was thinking that it's boom, boom, cha, boom. If the drums are playing that slow, then there's six in the measure. Three, two, two, three, 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 four, three, three. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yes, one of those and a very, again, a lot of freedom in the rhythm of the vocals that, you know, it's not to the point of like the new version of uh, Need You Around, but there's still, you're letting yourself do some melisma. Is that at the end of your some of your notes? Melisma? Is that, is that the word where you're taking so long? Where, you know, kind of you're doing multiple notes with a single word and kind of stretching out some of this. I don't know. I've never heard the word melisma before. <laughs> I, I'm probably using that wrong. I'll I look like it, it though, <laughs> because it strikes me as a cross between malaise and charisma, <laughs> which is like a, a potentially powerful combination. So can you say anything about, do you remember what once in a dream I saw? Your fate, you got these pauses kind of randomly. There may be a long way left to go. You know, the, it's interesting choice of where you're putting the words in this song. 
those choices all just happened kind of instinctually. You know, given the rhythm of the song, there's just a lot of space there for dramatic pauses between the lines. You just feel that and you just emote. It does seem to correspond with the personal drama that's being communicated in the lyrics of the song, which are kind of what I was telling you about, you know, like the lyrics are like, I'm waking up now and I'm laying it all down. It's this person who's singing about like the life changing nature of this relationship to just even use that phrase. I'm like, I'm, I'm laying it all down. Like everything that I have clung to in my life, I am laying it at your feet, Lord. There's this kind of fork in the road feeling to the song, which I think is is well accompanied by the kind of slow, thoughtful nature of the rhythm and the delivery of the song, in my opinion. I mean, it's easier to like have those critiques of it now because I'm I'm pretty far like I, I can't remember what year. We're almost 20 years down the road from that. So I, I feel like if I listen to a song that I wrote 18 years ago, I'm almost approaching it as an objective critic and I can make observations about how effective or not effective some of the choices were that were made. So which is interesting, but like, I don't know. Interviews are weird <laughs> because I don't usually sit around analyzing my own music this much. <laughs> you know, this is the thing about being interviewed is like you potentially come across as a completely self-absorbed narcissist because, hey, let's have a conversation about me and the little nuances of everything that I do. But like, I guess that's what interviews are. Well, it's also just getting at, you know, that you're faced with creative problems to be solved in this. So the fact that this is kind of a power ballad, but it it doesn't really, I mean, you're taking me home, you're taking, like, that's not Diane Warren. That's not the giant ship has has gone in and you could very easily, especially in a, oh, the Lord, like you could reach this to a fever pitch. But instead, it's like you're having to play this kind of careful, slow game with the mood of how, you know, very much expressed just in how high your voice is going to go in any given part that you're going to sweep up and then it's going to come back down and then it's going to do a little. And then, you know, the taking me home is kind of the climax of the song in terms of that. But it's not overwhelming. It's not something that then you have to, it's not Survivor. I had Jim Peterick on the show. So I going to such heights that then you have to perform a magic trick to bring it back down. <laughs> Did he talk about that? Those feats of uh, vocal trapezery <laughs> when you talk to him? Usually he would, like in Survivor, like he would get somebody else to do that. So it's not like he would force himself to do that generally. But yes, he, he's a strong believer. You know, that's a guy that could and has just been the solo artist and the front man and things. But like, no, at least with this band Survivor, we're going to get that vocal has to be almost inhuman <laughs> in its power and glory. And <laughs> so <laughs> getting somebody with that kind of voice. That'll teach you to look so good and feel so right. <laughs> Let me tell you about the girl I met last night. That might be one of my favorite songs. And you're from the same area. Jim Peterick is from Berwyn. Probably not your direction from Chicago, right? That's more Southwest. Um, I've grown up in this area. I currently live in Aurora, but like lived in the Algonquin area for a long time. Yeah, I'm from 
Northbrook myself, so northern northern suburbs. I didn't know was not playing in bands at that age until I got out of the city. So I was not as familiar with all those those venues that you guys probably hit in different decades. So just to sweep us back to the present, my funny Valentine, nineteen <laughs> back to the present with this song from nineteen thirty seven, covered many times, over six hundred times, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> different artists have done this. I could see what you were saying before about getting this new band in there and maybe you thought you were going to sing this like a ballad, <laughs> but this is not mellow, even in the way that the beginning of Taking Me Home is. This is uh, kind of a big punch in the face <laughs> right from the beginning with each hit of those the three of you together. That was the idea. This one I knew it needed to be a little heavy in order for it to work. It's It's really fun to play. It's a little heavier than anything else on the record. And there was just something about the punch in the face factor of those little hits every time we hit that chord and then stop and sing the line. We knew that that had to open the album. It was just, you know, such a series of left jabs. Well, folks should check that out. So the the hideout sessions that being just purely a quarantine kind of project, or is that trio? What are you working on now? I guess is what I'm asking you or, or looking to work on. You know, now that everybody can go out soon. We are planning on making another one of those records. The idea of it, of performing a live set in a club with no audience and doing reinvented versions of old songs and reinvented versions of some of my own songs. Like it just, even while we were working on the hideout sessions, it seemed obvious to us that there was potential for more of these records because there's, there's so much material there. And there were songs left over that we that we wanted to do that we didn't end up including on the hideout session. So we were like, well, let's just do another one. This time, though, we're going to move it to a different club. There's a club in Evanston called Space, and uh, we're going to do it there. But same deal, where we, we play a full set of songs that you haven't heard us do before, songs that are not on the hideout session's you can tune into a virtual show, you can watch us perform them, but we're also going to have that audio mixed and release it as another live album called The Space Sessions. We're putting that together right now. Looking forward to hearing it. Thanks so much for doing this. Sure, thanks for having me. It's been fun. My funny Valentine Sweet comic Valentine You make me smile with my heart Your looks are laughable Unphotographable But you're my Stay, little Valentine. Stay, 
Thanks so much to Josh. That's my first interview where the guest was recording from a church. He's had an interesting journey and another one of those bands that I just really enjoyed the music. It will be something that I listen to in my spare time. My next episode is with Cahal Coughlin from Fatima Mansions. Then I spoke to Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket and most recently Steve Kilby from The Church. So that is just three powerhouse interviews in a row. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast through nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or ad-free through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will also get you my show notes for these shows. I'm also very excited to have gotten together with my own band. We have a show lined up for August. You can follow us at Facebook if you look up Mark Lint's Dry Folk. And we're actually doing Need You Around as a cover, acoustically. A different arrangement, a different rhythm than either of the versions you heard here. So that one really grabbed my imagination. Hope you're all doing well, enjoying the summer. I have been working on a fourth podcast. We have not formally launched yet, but there are at least three episodes up right now at philosophyimprov.com. I will pitch that more when it formally launches, but there are some episodes up, and I'd love to hear from you what you think of them. It is a lot of fun. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lutzmeyer signing off. I need-